0: Hey everyone, this is Halle Applebaum, founder of Future of Women. You are listening to a phone call with me and my friend Radha Mistry, and we're about to hop on a call with my friend Martha, who's based in Geneva. Oh
1: man, we're having way too much fun on this. <laughs> Who would have thought, you know, however many years ago when we met in London, that this is where our journey would lead. <laughs> Halle, so nice to hear your
2: voice.
0: You too. We also have my friend Radha. Hi Radha. Hi, Hi nice
2: Martha. Nice to <laughs> me meet you.
0: Welcome <laughs> okay. to Geneva yes <laughs> this has been so fun as we've been doing these conversations to introduce my favorite women around the world to each other
2: oh my god Holly you always to the best initiatives especially <laughs> in times like this
0: I have really been wanting the two of you to meet because while you're working in completely different areas there's actually a lot of overlap but first Marta tell us all about the move to Geneva
2: Through my network of contacts, I saw a message that the communications team of WHO in Geneva is looking for support on the COVID outbreak. And I probably saw it early February. Back then, I had a sense that this is going to be the story that will shape the world somehow Mm -hmm. and that I would like to be a part of it. I had a sense that this is something important and that it would be so interesting to be a part of the team working on that in terms of communications, especially I contacted the person who posted. I wasn't even really interviewed. They just basically brought me on board (laughs) because I was working for Doctors Without Borders. And so it's a medical charity. And I have exactly the experience that they were looking for. Audiovisual production, health-centered video. I know how to shoot and edit. I have experience producing social media content. I sort of matched all the criteria and I speak French, so, so it's important for them. And they fed up the process, so it only took three weeks <laughs>
0: instead of three months. And there I was. You're at the epicenter of it.
2: Yeah, it's... everybody says it, but it doesn't feel like it. I feel like people who are in this epicenter are more the doctors or people who are really in the front line. And here it's the bureaucratic front line, so it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like a front line. But of course, it's, it's important. But you know when you're like in the middle of something important, but being in the middle of it, you don't see the whole picture. You need to sort of take time or take a step back and then you realize, wow, this is
1: where I was back then. But for me, I just go to the office. It's like when there's a hurricane, they describe it as being in the eye of the storm. That's the calmest part of the storm. And then there's just chaos around.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't feel like the front line because it's just Mm -hmm. the office and it's very empty now. Everybody's working from home and I was designed as a essential staff because our work as video producers is really hard to do from home. It's just been really weird. When I arrived, the building was full of people. I was excited. It was a new job. My first assignment with UN... And next week, it was already half empty. And only a couple of days later, my boss came to us and says, look, I'm gonna have to be home quarantined because I was in touch with someone. So basically, the three of you who just joined have to do it all alone. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we were just like, what? Are you serious? And of course, there was a lot of chaos and a lot of stress as well, because even for WHO, this is a new situation to have this level of pandemics reaching Geneva is unprecedented.
1: What has that been like? What is your day to day like right now?
2: So a lot of people ask me this question. A lot of people. And it's kind of hard to give one answer because almost every day is different. Mm. I don't have like one regular day. All in all, it's just been nothing normal. (laughs) Everything opposite to normal. So I arrived to a new city, which is not new for me. Holly knows I've been traveling a lot I lived in pretty much every continent possible already I arrived here and I had already some friends so in my you know, mind I had this vision of okay we're gonna work on epidemics but epidemics back then still but I still mm. was seeing myself hiking in the mountains in Switzerland and seeing my boyfriend coming to visit me in three weeks and making all these plans now when I think of it I'm just like it was so obvious that it's not gonna happen why didn't I see it back then Every day was bringing news and new measures. The borders were closed. Poland closed its borders pretty soon into this outbreak in Europe. So that meant I couldn't go back home unless I wanted to be quarantined in Poland. And it just gave me this weird sense of like, I don't have liberty anymore. I can't see friends or my family which is really scary to think if someone gets sick or if something happens i don't really have a way to help them and all these fears all this unpredictability of the situation was kind of haunting me and it's difficult to be in a place that you don't know that is not your city you don't have a family here and out of the sudden you find yourself completely disconnected from the world that you used
0: to be a part of how's your family doing in Poland?
2: My family is doing all right. My sister lives in the U.S. The most difficult part of it was to hear my sister break down at some point when the situation in the U.S. was just very stressful and very unpredictable and she felt very insecure. I had such a hard time listening to that on Skype and just not being able to hug her, you know. She's doing much better now. She's with her boyfriend's family, so they are at least surrounded by close people. uh, And I think she calmed down as well. And the second difficult part was to talk to my grandma, who's in Warsaw. And she's been in lockdown pretty much since the beginning. Mm -hmm. And she told me something that really moved me. She said, I'm not stressed of getting too much news or worried about getting sick. I'm worried of apathy. I'm worried of becoming completely Mm -hmm. numb because I don't see anybody. I feel like my existence is pointless. For me, it was so painful to hear it. I realized it's not enough for us to stay home, to protect the elderly, as many people are sharing this message, or to protect health workers and not to spread the disease. It's also important that while we stay home, we actually be proactive to reach out to those people who are vulnerable so they don't become completely disconnected. And so what I started doing is I started proactively emailing my grandma every other day with tasks. Mm. So I give her tasks like films that she can watch online because luckily she uses a little bit of internet. So I'm sending her theater pieces she can watch. I'm sending her little assignments. That's so So sweet.
0: I love that.
2: (laughs) I was thinking to call her on Skype just to have a discussion and record it because she told me also that she lived through the second world war and Mm. through communism. And she said, I've never seen anything like this. But of course, we will be fine. Humans always overcome all the adversity. But for me, this situation is just so new and I don't know how to deal with it, really. I think it's an important perspective for young people.
1: We were just talking about this yesterday and thinking in our short lifetimes, this has been probably the most impactful event that we've experienced. Our grandparents have lived through so much. I was talking to my aunt the other day, and she's in her 80s. And even she was saying that it feels surreal. She's not experienced anything like this. And this woman grew up in India. She left India in her 20s, moved to the UK at a time when a lot of Indian people weren't really accepted in society and was very much a trailblazer for her generation and and met with a lot of hardship. But for her, this is the thing that is most shocking. I feel like a lot of folks in her generation and your grandmother's generation, that's the thing that is so shocking to me is that when compared against World War Two and the atrocities of all of that, to say we've never seen anything like this is surreal.
2: Yeah, but I also think it's important to remember that we are in the middle of it now. It's really hard to grasp what it actually is and what it means mm. and what will be the consequences. And of course, it's important to have these reflections. I see a lot of projections, how it's going to change our world. There's a lot of discussion, and I think that's amazing. But I also think, it's kind of like you always feel like your experience is the most
0: intense experience.
2: And I think we need time to actually judge what it was and how it affected the world and our societies.
0: Rather, that's exactly why I invited you to be part of this conversation. You are thinking about how this experience is affecting our world and our society and what that means for the future. I'm trained as an architect.
1: Somehow in the last decade have found myself more on the research side and I focus on what we call future studies and foresight and so a lot of Mm. that is thinking about how will we design in the future, how will we make things in the future, what will society look like in the future. So a very Um, interesting time for you. (laughs) Oh yeah, I'm struggling between being curious about everything and not being overwhelmed by everything. Mm -hmm. At the core of my practice is how do we ensure that the future doesn't forget people
0: and rather through our conversations about the future I thought of Martha because I've been so inspired Martha I've been so inspired by your work using media to tell people's stories so that we don't forget them
2: I was born and grew up in Poland and I'm something of a multimedia journalist or video producer working on global issues Mostly collaborating with different NGOs. And in the last five years, I've been working with Doctors Without Borders. I was traveling to many countries in Africa Mm -hmm. and Latin America and covering their projects. I also lived in Southeast Asia for a while and worked from there. I've been moving around a lot, but always sort of drawn to topics that described how global... Affairs or issues affect us, social issues and human rights and women rights. My favorite mean of communications became video and multimedia. <laughs> I found it so powerful in today's world. I arrived on the 1st of March, oh. not even a month ago, but it feels like I've been here forever. When was it uh, officially pandemic, classified yeah,
1: as a pandemic? On
2: the 11th. It was just after I arrived. And I'm only here officially till the end of April, but... To be honest with you, I think it's going to last longer and I think I'll probably stay with them until things get a little bit slower, mm-hmm. which may not be very soon. So it's kind of an open situation here. I don't make any plans. I'm really trying to stay open and really live in the moment because especially right now, we are kind of frozen. We found ourselves frozen in the situation that we were in while this epidemics happened. That's what I keep telling my friends. We can't change it. We are in the place where we live, in a situation that we are in, and there's not much we can do about it. For me, it's really about not making any projections or not even making any plans, just enjoying the mission and the sense of purpose that I have right now.
0: Before joining the multimedia team at the WHO, you were at Doctors Without Borders, based in Barcelona, which is how we know each other. And I remember our conversations about the emotional and physical challenges of telling these stories the responsibility that you felt to to really tell these compelling stories which is what completely inspired me and and our friendship can you tell us more about this
2: so i started working with doctors without borders i was posted on my first mission to central african republic It was my first experience working as a, you know, part of a big NGO. I was responsible for communications from the field. So documenting everything that MSF was doing there. Also making sure that the world knows about what's happening. This is really at the core of the mission of Doctors Without Borders. Not only documenting what they do, but also making sure that people in the world know about this situation because often media wouldn't cover it or wouldn't cover it in the right way. I was responsible for working with journalists and finding stories that were interesting. But also I was shooting, making videos, taking photos. And from there, I went to work on the Mediterranean Sea in 2015. That was the first year when NGOs started rescuing people on Mm -hmm. Mediterranean. We worked on the route from Libya. So there were two routes back then, people fleeing Syria, through turkey to uh, greece and then the second one was people fleeing libya to europe and we were posted on mediterranean on, on a boat and i was documenting that too so that was a very very important and interesting experience and and after that i was posted in barcelona where Spanish MSF, Doctors Without Borders, had its headquarters. And from there, I would do missions depending on what was important at that time. So for instance, there was a huge epidemics of cholera in Congo, which wasn't attracting a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. The crisis in the media, and especially in countries like Spain or Italy or Poland, where there's not a lot of funding, caused these global issues to be completely neglected because there was just no money for reporters to go there. So what ended up happening is that MSF would send people like me to film testimonies and images and basically give them to the media and say, hey, this is important. You should talk about it just to give you a sense of Why is cholera epidemics important? There is this constant war in the east of Congo over minerals. These minerals are exported for Europeans and Westerners to be able to have new iPhone. So people in this region are suffering from all kinds of poverty, from lack of access to resources, and they live in one of the most beautiful places in the world by the beautiful lake, but the lake got contaminated with cholera. If it wasn't for NGOs, people there would have no access to potable water and really basic amenities. When the cholera outbreak happened, there was no one to respond to this outbreak because the Trump administration just decided to cut funding For development aid, there was no money there to do anything. People were dying massively. So we wanted to draw attention to this problem and to the lack of funding. The epidemics was creating even more conflict because people, they lost livelihoods. Everything is always connected in these situations. I was always responsible for shooting and editing and thinking of a story, but I was working as a part of a bigger team. And often we were collaborating with journalists. So we would do a project with Spanish radio or with a Spanish newspaper to go and cover these issues.
1: My God, this just sounds like there's so much here, and I would have like (laughs) five hours to just like have tea and talk about this. One of the things when I think about foresight that I struggle with is there's so much what I call noise out there, and my job is to parse through the noise and amplify the things that I think our team, our company, our society, our community needs to be thinking about. What is your process to find the story and find The thing that people absolutely have to listen to when there is, like you just said, so many things that people need to be paying attention to that they're not.
2: It's not a lone job in my case. Very often it was a call of many people who took a decision together on what has to be brought to people's attention. And there are different levels of it. There is a level of advocacy when Doctors Without Borders, for instance, would take a decision that there is a very important issue and we need to make a stance and we need to really call the bullshit, so to say. (laughs) When the European Union made the deal with Turkey to stop refugees from coming, that was the moment when MSF assembled and said, we don't want any more of your European Union money because this is just hypocrisy and you cannot be funding our projects while at the same time giving all this money to Turkey to stop these people from seeking refuge. But on a micro scale, when I work, I learned that what works the best is my instinct. I've never been trained as a journalist or as a filmmaker or as a storyteller. So I guess through experience and seeing how other people work, observing good journalists, watching good documentaries, I got a sense of what works. and usually. It's the person who moves me. Like when I hear a story, when I see a person who is charismatic, I'm immediately drawn to them. And I think other people would be as well. In these times of noise, I'd follow my instinct. Is there anything that you
1: wish had made it out into the world that didn't?
2: Oh, yeah, I have many. When I was working on the Mediterranean on the rescue boat, it was a very intense experience. I met hundreds of people whom we rescued. But couple stories really stayed with me. And two of them were women who, one of them gave birth on our boat. I was there with her and she agreed to be filmed. So I documented her story. And the other one was heavily pregnant when she got on board. She was so charismatic and so outspoken. And we kept in touch. And when she gave birth in Italy, she named her baby after the boat. The boat was called Dignity and her baby Dignity was born in Italy. When I came back from the Mediterranean, I really had a sense that I want to show these stories as human stories and there is more to be said than these people were rescued and this is a horrible situation. And so I tried to document and find them, which wasn't easy actually. Because these people, they almost have no names and and no phones and and no addresses. But I managed to find them in Italy and I went and filmed them there, both of them. Especially for Collins, who gave birth on our boat. I didn't really know her story very well because she was in labor. I was just trying to be there for her and make her feel safe. And explain to her what we are doing, why I want to film it, why it's important. And then she very quickly got transferred to another boat that brought her to Italy for obvious reasons. So... Mm. And I remember when I found her in Italy in the middle of countryside, a very beautiful place, but she was living in this secluded house with other women in a vulnerable situation with young kids. She told me her story and I think I was the first person she told it to. I realized she just went through absolutely despicable traumas, Mm. rapes and torture and kidnapping and everything that you can imagine. I felt like this pain and the importance of this moment, but also the responsibility. Am I the right person to listen to this story? You know, all of the mixed feelings. I knew it's an important story, but I somehow couldn't get people to understand that it's important to tell it because it's hard to document this kind of story. It needs time, it needs money. And I wasn't mm-hmm. able with my ongoing nine to six job to follow through with this project i didn't have the network or the energy and i had to let it go and it was really difficult for me to leave it behind you know i have couple stories like this but it's part of being a journalist or documenting things you have to let go of stories and it's really painful but you have to make these painful choices sometimes and maybe pick one and really follow through through all the obstacles and there will be many
0: Do you feel like institutions like the UN are mobilizing in the way that they should or that the way that we had hoped they would right now?
2: I think right now, more than ever, we see the utmost importance of these institutions, like the UN, WHO is part of the UN system. UN is one of the most criticized organizations in the world. And rightly so, there are many points on which you can criticize it. But in this pandemic, I don't see Anybody else, really, in the world who could do this job? Who else could reunite all these countries, get all this data, put in place all these collaborations? And the collaborations are going on on so many levels. It's crazy. From scientific and medical and epidemiological and economical. They are working with all these partners. There's so many things that they're doing. I'm not even aware (laughs) of all of them. It's mind-blowing. You can see right in your inboxes if you look at your inbox how many emails did you get from companies that send you newsletters all of them now write about covid mm-hmm. all of them write something about coronavirus every app you use probably has a banner now learn more about coronavirus spotify uh, facebook whatsapp has a special yeah. chat bot it's incredible like it's amazing how everybody's in it together, and it makes us all in the same boat for once.
1: There's really a sense of community. I'm curious what people are doing to adapt. This notion of crisis breeds creativity. Human beings are resilient as hell. I wonder sometimes if it would have been the same if we didn't have the technology we have. Our sense of community today, Mm. has it become connected so quickly because we have mobile technology at our fingertips? The fact that you can send your grandmother emails every day of things to keep her busy we couldn't have done that even 20 years ago
2: no but then the pandemic wouldn't be here so quickly either you know what Mm. I mean it's the other side of the same thing I mean we live in this globalized world internet it's a great privilege and it brings a lot but it also takes a lot from us but on the other hand it's kind of hard to imagine this epidemic going so fast 20 years ago people didn't travel so much. It's incredible how much the mobility, the amount of trade we do. The reason why this virus spreads so quickly is not just because it's highly contagious. It's because people move so much. That's how it was brought from China to Italy and, and so on and so forth.
0: I was watching a documentary on CNN about infectious disease and pandemics, and it was talking about the impact that humans are having on the environment and how we are pushing animals who are carriers of these diseases into more urban spaces.
2: There's no doubt that human activity in the last 20 years changed the world Mm -hmm. dramatically. The virus is probably in one way or another a manifestation of that. Whether you believe it's a, a shout of Mother Nature, basically. <laughs> okay, guys,
1: you couldn't figure it out. Let me. I do sometimes feel that way, <laughs> but then I feel conflicted in feeling that. But I do feel like the planet was like, all right, if you guys aren't getting yourself in order, I'm going to just throw something at you so that you have a wake-up call. This level of shutdown will have impact on the
2: emissions, and we already mm-hmm. know it and we see it. It's going to be interesting to see what it's going to do. Like, Will we believe that emissions affect the climate so much because maybe we'll have the data now to show it to people that before wouldn't be
0: possible who would have agreed to stop all the planes (laughs) you know this has accelerated experimentation in so many industries you could have never asked all teachers all students all parents to get on board for this two-month-long three-month-long experiment of having kids educated from home You could have never gotten all the people in gyms on board for having people do workout classes from home. Really hard stuff is happening. Maybe some of the silver lining of this is that it is getting us to experiment. It is getting us to reconsider the way that systems work. We're checking in on each other. You're checking in on your grandmother in Poland. I'm checking in on my 99-year-old grandmother in Philadelphia. And that's really inspiring to see that we're in it together. So switching gears, something that Radha and I were talking about before we hopped on the call is breakfast. She was talking about breakfast that her family would have in India. I was talking about what I have for breakfast, and we were wondering, what do you have for breakfast in Geneva?
1: Well, I just had coffee, so I feel like anything. But yeah, but that's coffee. cool. No, 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 that's cool. That's
2: cool. In Europe, like it's it's so common that people just have coffee. Goodness. It's a hipster thing to do. I, mean, <laughs> I don't do breakfast. So I just have coffee. So what I started doing, and I found it like it really changed my mornings, is I never worked. Uh, weird hours like I do now, so I now I often work till very late because all the press conferences are late, and so I get to have time in the morning rather than the evening, and this is a new thing for me and I found this time in the morning so blissful for me. there's no rush it's really nice. so what I started doing is in the morning when I wake up, I don't have the breakfast right away. I usually do a little bit of meditation or a little bit of yoga, I know so cliche, but sorry that's what I do. After maybe one hour, I get to eat something. And what I started doing is... It's a long answer, but it makes sense. <laughs> After my breakfast, I will usually, within one hour, I'll have to bike to work. And I don't know if you know Geneva, but it's pretty hilly. The of office is on a very nice hill, but it's really a hardcore <laughs> bike ride, which was keeping me healthy throughout all this time. And it is still. So I can't really have a big breakfast either because then I'll just feel probably like throwing up wild while biking. Oh, no. So I started making these smoothies. And what I do is I put oats in yogurt overnight. Mm. And then in the morning, I put that with nuts and with maybe some chia seeds or some almonds. And I add to this whatever fruits I have. So today I had orange and strawberry. And the other day I had banana and mango. And I also add a fresh ginger and turmeric. That's what I also add. So this is my energy and my immune system booster, morning
0: breakfast. I love it. sounds delicious. If anything,
1: anything, this is giving me ideas for what to have to accompany my coffee. Ramp up (laughs) that
0: coffee. I recommend. Thank you for taking time to chat with us.
1: This has been amazing. I mean, like for me, even, you know, Hallie and I have kind of been able to introduce our favorite women on the planet Mm -hmm. to each other. And every time I meet one of Hallie's friends, I was like, man, can we just all get in a room and no. have, like, a whole weekend together? <laughs> well, you know, I... <laughs> when we are allowed to exactly. maintain social distance yeah. anymore.
2: At some point, we can throw future of women party. Ah. I would love that. Hallie, and thanks so much for inviting me. I love chatting with you. Oh. I, it's unusual that people have this instinct to document these moments because Mm. you are so you know into it that it's hard to take a step back so i think it's great that you're doing it because it's going to be a great resource for you later
0: martha thank you so so much sending you a big hug all the way to geneva stay healthy keep doing your stuff it's really inspiring big hug thank you bye.
2: bye